Hello, this is Andrew. In this podcast, Raul and I are going to talk about Marshall Rosenberg's book called Nonviolent Communication. In the first part of the podcast, we're going to discuss the four rules that he establishes as being necessary to engage in what he calls a process of nonviolent communication. Number one, we are to observe the facts around us and in front of us. Number two, we are to talk about feelings without judgment. Number three, we are to identify our needs. And number four, we are to make a request. Inherent in Rosenberg's rules are underlying principles or assumptions and what constitutes what Rosenberg conceptualizes as nonviolent communication. Principles such as we all have the same needs. All behavior is simply to meet those needs. Each individual is responsible for their own feelings and needs. No one can make us feel something. And Rosenberg also believed that essentially we are all motivated by a compassionate nature. Underneath all our behaviors lies what Rosenberg thought was our compassionate nature. In the second part of the podcast, Raul and I discuss a summary of Rosenberg's book written by Eric Torenberg. Eric has 18 points that he has separated Rosenberg's work into, and we discuss the validity and, and how it applies to personal relationships and whether it is useful in all contexts, such as abusive relationships or relationships that are unbalanced or interactions that are inherently racist, for example. So that's basically the podcast in a nutshell. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I hope it stimulates thought and reflection. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Hey, Raul. How are you? This is, uh, this is, our, is this our seventh episode? Maybe, yeah. I don't, I don't remember. Could be. No, not seven episodes old. So we are going to be talking about nonviolent communication from written by Marshall Rosenberg, I believe. Yes, so I think it's it's been written a while ago, so it's a classic. Uh, what are your like? I was interested in in uh, talking about this because like when I when I glanced at the book, I thought, well, this this seems really prescriptive, you know, and also perhaps a bit dependent on the author's uh, worldview and. What are what are your thoughts? Like, what what um, what were your first first impressions, and why do you why do you think uh, this would make an interesting topic of conversation? I was interested because of the title, and because I I believe that there's a lot of violence in relationships that is left unspoken that people don't find words for or language for, and that a lot of times we don't recognize the many ways in which we are violent to each other in ways that are not physical. And so the title was interesting and piqued my curiosity. I wanted to see what this person had to say about how we communicate in a way that is not, not violent. Um, so that's how I started getting into the book. Um, you? 
I think what I found interesting is that someone would attempt even such a broad uh, subject to narrow it down into some tenets of what to that how to shape nonviolent communication that someone thought that that was actually possible. <laughs> and mm. but what it reminded me of is like what I've experienced in the past from a from a group that I was a part of is that they would make agreements. This was sort of like a little bit of a spiritual group, kind of cultish group that I was a part of. And that that how they would shape communication would be by making agreements about what was okay with either party. And I was reading some of your critiques of of this this article, and I noticed that one one of your critiques was that there's an assumption that both parties are willing participants and that if they weren't willing participants it it could be trying to force intimacy on another person yeah i think that goes to like the premise of the book that he just states and i think that's been discussed and extensively in philosophy and in social science generally that we are inherently we inherently have a compassionate nature and we want all that we really want to do is communicate hearts with you know with our hearts and, and and have beautiful relationships with each other but but that's not necessarily true for many people that's uh i think that's, that's a that's a fallacy hey well it's i don't know if it's a fallacy it's just a very broad generalization that he just assumes is true and 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 based on that he builds his model right that's yeah. like the foundation of it yeah and that's where a lot of criticism can be uh th- there were there are four points that he, main tenets that he presents as being necessary to engage in the practice of uh, nonviolent communication. Number one is observation. So in his view, he, he suggests specific facts, data, no evaluation or judgment, if that's even possible. I don't know how that's possible. Number two, feeling, to state to the other person how we feel. Mm-hmm. And and then number three, express the need, the need underlying this feeling, and then request is the is the final step in his uh, model of nonviolent communication, where a request must be sp- a specific action to to the person they're addressing to address a certain need. Mm-hmm. Any mm-hmm. comments about that? Go ahead. Well, I was I was saying any comments about that, but I I was uh, I think I I have a problem. To start off with, uh, it almost seems like he's playing with words simply like, it's easy to say no evaluation or judgment, but ultimately I think that is inherent in in our perception of the world and how we, I think he's suggesting to people to use words that are not, cannot be interpreted as being judgmental. I wonder if this is kind of like a manipulation. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. So again, like, I've read social science research that says that it is almost impossible not to react with judgments or in a moral frame, even like, like we're primed to something happens. And the first thing we do is we put it in a moral frame without even realizing it. And then later on, we try to find justification for our initial moral reaction. And so to, to just see something happen, especially if you like to observe something in a relationship, especially if it's quite you know, like an, a lot of emotions and histories are involved in it, and to just 
sit back, detach, become like a scientist to almost see the interactions as a series of objects that you can see in a, like in a, in a, in a that you can order and observe and to then describe them dispassionately. That I feel like that's like, yeah, I don't think that's possible. It's like, and wouldn't, it's an idea. wouldn't that Again? be, wouldn't that be triggering to the person? Because in, in a way, this, there's another assumption inherent in, in that, I think, is that um, everyone has a background in like, critical analysis or analysis in general. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of analysis here necessary for a conversation to happen. Well, I think he's trying to make it as simple as possible for people. So the observa- of the, at the observation stage, stage um, all he's, I think he's asking people to do is um, put yourself, step back a little bit and observe what people are saying and doing. And then without give without and, and prevent and, and trying not to interpret it right away. Mm-hmm. Um, so this person is, but it's, it's hard to, to do that, right? Because we immediately, how do we not, how do we express something without interpreting it? So for example, I see somebody is, you know, somebody slapped another person. So my observation would like, even in the, in the description slap, like that has moral and the moral interpretation, moral, valence to it. So how do I, like somebody applied physical force with their hand on somebody else. Okay. Very dispassionate observation. And then, um, you know, like it's a bit removed from how we live our lives, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think like in the context of, uh, an, uh, interpersonal relationships, um, I think that that he there's a certain ideal situation that he's referring to, like um, for example, if if I am uh, washing the dishes instead of uh, giving my part, or if I am not coming home until late, then my my partner may say something like, "I I notice that you are coming home late." And perhaps feeling, stating how they feel then would be, you know, I feel um, alone and uh, uncared for. And then the, the need subsequently could be, I need you to spend more time with me or, or I, I need more affection. And then the request could be, I need you to spend more time with me so that that would be an ideal, I think, some something in in line with with what this author is referring to, uh, in terms of how to conduct yourself in a way that that will communicate your need. But again, this this author is all, there's an underlying assumption that that this author has that everything that we do is is uh, is simply about unmet needs or. And, and, and an effort to communicate those unmet needs uh, to another person. Is that, is that not true, or is that just a too broad of a generalization? If all of our interactions are based on unmet needs or needs that we well, have? Well, not, not that all our interactions are, but uh, that interactions that involve uh, uh, disharmony, you know, 
that, that have the seeds of disharmony. This author is suggesting that in order to counteract that, we can uh, go through these steps and prevent, prevent disharmony. Well, if we, if we go back to some of our earlier discussions on emotions, mm. then um, emotions are sort of a way that communicate, or feelings um, are ways that, that, that our body has of communicating to us that something is not quite right. And so there's some, we are, there's like a baseline that we need to function um, that is related to our well-being. And then if something doesn't, is off, we feel it in our bodies and we try to, if we try to express that feeling, we can try to reorientate our relationships towards the baseline. So if somebody feels lonely because their partner doesn't come home a lot, then the feeling is addressing that need, like the for connection. And by expressing your, you know, your, your need and your feeling and listening to that and then making a request, you're trying to get back to baseline where you can feel safe and secure in the relationship. So, I mean, I think ultimately, yes, that this communicate, but most of the communications are about our needs and um, our well-being, no? When it comes to interpersonal relationships, when we are communicating from the heart, I think I would I would uh, agree that that's always you know uh, we are using other people uh, and our relationships around us in order for us to identify those needs and to to act or for ha uh, request others to to uh, respond to to a need. Yeah, I agree with that. Like in everyday life, obviously that's not. That's not always the case. We're communicating for other purposes. We're communicating for, uh, like, maybe it's a business transaction or maybe it. Yeah, but he would be saying that underneath that, there's mm -hmm. still a need. That we still, is like still some fundamental need that we have. But, but still, we're, we're, we're meeting other needs. Like, we have, uh, we have needs of, like, food and, and, and shelter, and we need to negotiate those, those interactions as well despite our needs. So our needs as a, as a, as our, our needs, as, re, as it relates to our heart and our emotions may not enter into those conversations. They may still be present, but uh, they may not be so much a part of those conversations. Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of ways that we compromise in life and like act against our needs because, you know, they have conflicting needs or you subordinate your own needs to somebody else's needs or like to the bigger goal that you have, you know, my, my need for sleep, I might sub subordinate under my need to like, or my desire, I guess, to make money, um, which is tied to the need again, you know, to feel like you're, you know, you're well off, you're protected, you're, you're safe, what, you know, whatever the need is under that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like I, f I feel like this is specific to interpersonal relationships. Uh, even though he at times relates it to broader like efforts at communication with you know authoritarian governments, I think he even raises that uh, subject as 
nonviolent communication could apply in those situations uh, as well. But back to back to his four basic tenets: observation, feeling, need, and request. I, I noticed that in your critique of this uh, this article, also you suggested that if the other person doesn't want to communicate in this way, that it is almost a forcing intimacy. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah. So when I was reading this art, this book initially, I thought, oh, you know, like a lot of these things make sense trying to connect with somebody on a deeper level and you're trying to figure out how to better communicate to be more precise about your feelings um because that's the thing that i kind of that i value from like a, a thing i value that i take away from this approach that i value being more precise about your own feelings in a situation not to uh, arrive at conclusions at the beginning not to you know be too judgmental or to step back and at the same time however if this this approach can also be used in a way that is quite coercive and that can force intimacy on someone because the idea is that the premise is that you have two people who care for each other and they really want to relate at a deeper level and so but that's a bit of an assumption well it is an assumption yes but that's the issue like and, and then the, the, the tools that he provides are enable an increasingly more intimate conversation that doesn't really give the other person the opportunity to say, no, you know, I don't want to engage with that feeling that you have right now, or I don't want to do that right now, or I need some space. Because then the other person can say, well, you saying no right now is making me feel this. And my need is that we stay in this conversation, right? Like my request is that we, we stay in this conversation and then they like don't take no for an answer and they keep digging and digging into why you currently don't want to engage. And then they express their, you know, their frustration and how it make, how it's making them not heard or like they feel that you just don't care about them by not wanting to engage in this conversation. And so it, it kind of, there's no out. You know, you can get trapped in these conversations that just like go on and on and on. And like one person, they, you know, they might mean well or they might also not mean well. They just keep digging. And the some of the critiques that I was reading that I agree with is that this can be a form of course intimacy where boundaries are just disregarded. And you just say, no, let's stick stick to this conversation. Let's get to the bottom of this. You saying no, it doesn't work for me because it triggers all these things in me, and therefore I request that we continue. And at the same time, the other person, you know, their request to say no is it doesn't fit into this framework. No, but I, I mean, um, when you're in a relationship, though, there's investment, you know, and I think if if one of the partners feels the not uh, secure in the relationship, I think that they would they would want to find again uh that sense of security to know that their partner is as committed to them as as they are to to, to making it work so when they are met constantly with uh 
with a message that the partner is unable or unwilling or for whatever reason the partner has to not engage in reestablishing stability in the relationship, I think that that almost uh, is leading to the end of the relationship. Wouldn't you agree? Like, I think there's a, I think it's, uh, there's a distinction to be, be, to be made between in a relationship where, where somebody constantly is just not willing to talk about something. Mm-hmm. I think that is different between from in a particular moment, this person saying, you know what, there's something that I can, I cannot, for whatever reason, I cannot engage into this with, with you about this right now. I need some space. And it's just time to think about it and whatever happens. And then the other, if the other person doesn't accept that based because due to the framework that I think that's problematic. What is also problematic is though, is the, if one pe- person, you know, tries to deepen the relationship by talking about these things that are between them and the other person consistently says, no, I don't want to talk about this. And that in itself, the, the is, can be a form of emotional neglect or not, you know, I guess it can take some a form of abuse, like, and it leaves the other, the one person with all of the emotional baggage, all of the emotional work, because the other person just doesn't want to engage in a specific conversation. Yeah, it becomes, yeah, I, I would agree. I think the, the person, like if, I, I'm again reminded of agreements, like if, if people in a relationship make agreements about what's acceptable to both parties uh, and they, they revisit those agreements, like if, for example, you were saying that one partner uh, doesn't want to talk about, about a specific issue, they both agree that, you know, the issue won't be pressed it won't be it won't be forced upon them to talk about it if they don't want to talk about it but in the larger scheme of things i i agree with you i think that the uh, the need to talk about what's happening in the relationship is inherent to being in a relationship and and if it becomes uh, one-sided in in that respect then it's it's not sustainable and yeah, yeah. i and I agree. I think those agreements, relationship agreements, are can be quite important. And I don't think there's. I think this framework can work, you know, well in situations where you have two people who are committed to each other, and whatever power balances, imbalances exist, are mitigated by love for each other or a commitment to each other, a relationship to make, you know, to make it work. But in situations where that is not the case, and where there's an imbalance in in, ter- in in terms of commitment to the relationship, in terms of respect for each other, in terms of how much power you want to have in this relationship, in terms of abuse that one person has to experience because of the other's way of relating to them, then this framework actually might enable an abuser to, because a big part of this framework is to take responsibility for your own thoughts, actions, and feelings, right? So if, if, if something happens to me and I experience that as an abuse, then the abuser might say, well, I, this, you know, based on this framework, we want to judgmental language is non is violent language. Therefore don't judge me. Try to find, like, try to look at my, try to observe what I did connected to my feelings and my needs and my requests, as opposed to saying, you know, what you're doing is abusive. So what's a um, what's a real life example of that role? Like what what would you 
um, you know, gaslighting, narcissistic behavior that is quite controlling. Um, you know, let's say one partner is very controlling in the sense of what the other person can, you know, see their friend, for example. I don't want you to see your friends anymore because it makes me feel this and therefore my request is not for you not to see them. When the other person says, you know, questions that and, and you know, there's, you cannot, it's not easy to resist that kind of request within this Frame framework it. because it assumes that the other person is expressing a valid request based on their needs, which are Im as important in this relationship as are yours without within a context that is not where there is no power imbalances. But if this relationship is actually one where this person has a tendency to control, to be very controlling and entitled to somebody's time and wants to, have this other person focus entirely on them, then these requests are, even though they're framed in a nice way, you know, they have the implication of isolating this person, of removing them from their circle of friends. Um, and they come across as legitimate, you know, because I'm just expressing my feelings here. You know, I, I have strong feelings of needing connection, just like being focused on you. And if you go to your friends, I feel like you don't care for me anymore, like, or you don't respect me, or like, like why, why do you need your friends? You know, I'm, I'm here. And, and so there, there, you feel like this uh, observation that the four tenants, observation, feeling, need, request, fall short of what, what's needed in terms of evaluating some patterns of relationship like it, it falls short yeah. of of identifying I mean, patterns that can be destructive yeah and like the the importance of you know taking responsibility for your own actions i get it it's it's you know in some situations that's totally valid but in other situations that's part of an abusive relationship right if one person hits another person and the conversation then goes, well, you know, I I hit you, and but like, what is what was your role in this? You know, like you did these things. You should take responsibility for these things that you said, and these that these things made me feel very angry, and you know that led up to my my physical me being physically violent, versus saying no, like physical violence is never acceptable. Whatever I did, um, you know, there's nothing that I need to take responsibility here for in this context, you know. And so I find that it can be easily weaponized, this kind of framework, to, take, to say, well, you need to take responsibility for your feelings and thoughts. If you feel that what I did hurts you, maybe you shouldn't look at, like, what is, why, is, why are you feeling um, hurt by this? As, as, as if it is inside of you where the hurt comes from and not in the relationship between you, you know? And, and so in that way, it can be... It can be misleading, I think. Enabling. Enabling and, and misleading in terms of if a person is, is entirely focused on themselves 
as the source of of uh, of their feelings. On one hand, it can it, it like that's not I don't think the nature of of how interpersonal relationships work. So on on one hand, it's it's a it's a useful framework, but on the other hand, it can enable abusive behavior. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, and a big part of that is the imperative not to use judgmental language, not to to assume, to look for the best in the other person, and to take responsibility for your own thoughts, feelings, actions. Um, can you can you say a little more about that? Like, what do you mean? Like, uh, so well, yeah. One example that I was reading about is like in a conversation about race, right? Mm -hmm. We have a white person expressing their feelings, their racist feelings to a person of color. And then in this framework, the person of color is expected to consider these feelings as equally valid as their own feelings. These two people are talking in a context where there's no power imbalance. And if, as if the emotional labor that has to be done is the same in, in this context here. You know, if a white person, for in this context, wants to engage in a very intimate conversation about race and their feelings, it is just mild the difference in the amount of emotional labor that has to that has to be put into this conversation is just so much different for a white person than a person of color, just because of the context and the violence of everyday life, right? And, and so. These things, they were, these kind of, this is just a very strong example of why context matters and just the amount of emotional labor and the stakes in conversations based on the bigger context that we live in. And I think the same applies to gender. We still live in a society where men have more power and more privilege than women. And so there's much more at stake in conversation often for women and the emotional labor might be just higher because it's just because there's so much that men take for granted or take like feel entitled about and they are you know you may like a an understanding of how the systemic it operates in the intimate relationship and how gender imbalances perpetuate both, both at the systemic and individual individual level you know and you don't realize that and you just think you're just a normal human being having a conversation as opposed to you know a white man in a heterosexual society that has historically been made for white men then you're not going to be very sensitive to you know maybe considering that your feelings in this context are not unproblematic and you know there should be some moral clarity what, on what's going on here no don't don't you think yeah, I think you make a good point. Like your your point is is that uh, we don't exist in a vacuum, and uh, it's simplistic to apply the four tenets of observation, feeling, need, and request to everyday interactions because uh, there are systemic inequities, there are historical inequities, and subsequently there's also perhaps less knowledge of how to negotiate the realm of feelings w within white, the heterosexual males. Perhaps there's, there's less understanding, uh, given that they have uh, been privileged not to have to do what you had called emotional labor. If you could uh, define what emotional labor would be for our audience, that might be helpful for, for people to, uh, to know more what you're talking about when you say emotional labor. Why I think 
you know, if just an example, if you're in a relationship with someone who is quite stoic, they don't respond to a lot of the things you, you say or you're left in the dark about a lot of things, then you have to interpret that. You have to manage your feelings around that. You have to try to understand them. You have to, there's a lot of uncertainty that you're dealing with that creates a lot of emotions that you have to process. If, on the other hand, they were to respond to you in a very, in a way that brings their emotions and their feelings and their thoughts to the foreground, then they're doing that emotional work. You don't have to do that for, for them by interpreting it. Their yeah. silences. Yeah, they're meeting sure. you in a place where you're both emotionally invested and emotionally sharing. And if you keep, if you're with someone who just doesn't do that, or who says these things, says things that you know can be harmful, but just doesn't want to talk about it at all, then you're left to do that work. That's a lot of emotional labor, and I think historically, men have you know been considered as the ones that pass off the emotional labor onto women yeah. whether it's in comments or 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 uh in how like comments within social spaces or or uh uh insults uh comments about body image like or bodies women's bodies etc is that yeah. what you're referring yeah. to yeah and you could also see that in context of race like how these comments are not understood by the speakers to and and uh, to carry to carry consequences, and those consequences, like you had said, often involve a lot of processing of one's feelings. There's there's a there's an absence of openness to to receive feedback. Often, like uh, I think I think uh, white male fragility, this idea of white fragility, perhaps is in line with that thought. That even once the emotional labor is passed off by insensitivity and the inability to empathize with, with another person such as uh, that is different from yourself, that has a different historical, uh, historically has had different struggles. There, there is also often an absence to receive feedback or a rigidity around receiving feedback. Yeah. And there's like this quote from an author that I, I like, it's, he says something like, the other person speaks a word and I hear behind that word an entire world. And so words have impact beyond much more that you can often see. So in the conversation of race, for example, a white person expressing their feelings in a certain way about the dislike of, you know, a particular racial group behind that, you know, what the white person may consider to be like their right to say what to, to express themselves, you know, there, there is this entire world of pain and history and, and institutional violence and neglect, like, and this, all this huge balloon of stuff, they don't even have to deal with because they have been a beneficiary of the system. And the other person not only has to navigate that, but they also have to navigate their, their the white person's emotions and their own. So, and the same is true for really conversations in between men and women. Simple, innocent words that are phrases or expressions of needs that men may have in relationships. If you study history and the implications of systemic inequalities 
on the lives of women, then there's this entire thing that men just are not aware of, that they don't even need to deal with emotionally, that their partner may have to engage with, like, so, so have to navigate at that point, you know? That sounds, uh, that sounds really interesting. Can you, can you bring that into a real-life uh, example? Like, what would, you, what would be an example? Um, what would be an example of uh, something that a man would say in a relationship with a woman that would could be uh, seemingly innocuous and and, uh, yeah. and 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 that would all of a sudden trigger a, a, a response from a woman that that where where she would have to do like process her own feelings and it would it would cause her a lot of. Uh, uh, like like she couldn't raise the 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 topic with her with her partner uh, she would have to handle it on her own and it had roots in historical kind of inequity between genders yeah. between male and female one example is for example where the man expresses his need for his partner to focus more on him and to not so much spend so much time with her friends no for the man, it might just be a seemingly innocent request, like, I love you, I want to spend as much time with you as I can, I just don't want you to spend so much time with other people because it makes me feel like you don't care for me or like neglected, etc., etc., right? It, it seems innocent, but if you put it into the bigger picture framework of historical relationships between men and women, you realize that men have often felt entitled to women's times, bodies, presence, and not at all accountable in the reverse. And so... Uh, not all at all accountable in reverse. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, and, right? And so... But isn't that again about communicating needs then? Yeah, for sure, but it, it's this, this man is communicating his need in a seemingly innocent way. Yeah. But if you take the big picture, then the baggage, the emotional labor that has to go into this is very different because I can imagine that women in this context might have to navigate a whole bunch of gender expectations and histories that they're either resisting or having to deal with in this context. You know, what? yes, you know, they want to be with their partner, but yes, his, like, men still feel like they can have, they can be entitled to women's time and bodies and, and tension. And to resist that, you could you may, you might come across as you know cold or like selfish. But it, if you put that in the context of systemic inequalities, systemic relationships between genders, the way it's been structured historically, and how that carries forward, it takes on a different, very different view. And then, as a man, you might not say, "Hey." You might be more cautious in expressing your desire for them to not be with their friends. You might even not do that because you recognize in that the same, the, the, the remainders of this history that is still with us in certain ways, right? And you say, you won't say, hey, I don't want you to spend so much time with your friends because you realize that you don't have, you're not entitled to their time. You're not entitled to... Yeah, you know, does that make sense? I don't know. Um, yeah, but it, it for me, it, it there's there's some aspects that are problematic about that, and uh, it, in a complex dance of a relationship, those are things that are usually negotiated. Like in a healthy relationship, 
those things are negotiated. In a relationship that where a man is distant from, from uh, the, his partner, because mm-hmm. we're, we're speaking about heterosexual relationships right now, when the man is distant from his partner and then makes these offhand comments and it, it's kind of a self-centered uh, relationship where the man is simply thinking only of his own needs, that's one thing. But when, when there is an opportunity in that uh, relationship for there to be a negotiation for that, for that woman to feel safe, to, to share her disagreement uh, and also her, her reaction to uh, the request for him uh, that he makes of her to, to not see her friends. Like, the, in that case, emotional labor is kind of shared. The, the man actually would, would create an emotional space for, for the woman to express herself, receive those emotions, and respond accordingly. Like, Whereas in a, in, a, in a less functional relationship where the man was self-centered and thinking only of his own needs and, and not receptive or responsive to his partner, then I could, I could understand how the historical context would be more severe and, and felt deeper, felt in a deeper way. And, and the emotional work would be entirely on uh, the woman in that example. But that's, you know, would you agree to that or would you have an issue with, with no, that. Yeah. Of course, there's, there's many different ways that you can negotiate and share emotions in a, in a relationship. But I still think that, A, there's been so much investment historically into creating or into, into for men to feel entitled to certain things and to take th- certain things for granted. Mm-hmm. It's become that, it, that I suspect that there are a lot of relationships or these things just sneak in, even though they appear loving or normal. And to unpack that, it's usually the other person that have, has to unpack that. Uh-huh. I, I and it doesn't, yeah. right? And, and, and that creates, that is an inherent... Inequity. Harm. Yeah, and if you don't recognize the moral, the moral and the ethical and the bigger framework within which this relationship sits and you just assume everything is neutral and everybody has the best interest at heart of the other person then you you miss that how easily big cultural narratives seep into this relationship that we nevertheless try to make make equitable because even ideas of equity and justice and who deserves what these are all influenced by cultural narratives and like for the longest time they were tilt, they were tilted towards one gender and not the other, and it was taken for granted that men it was just in a relationship for men to have as much opportunity to spend as much time as what they wanted with other men because of cultivated networks of cultivated relationships that were important, and the women were domestic they were just you know in the house and for them to spend much time away from the men and with friends that just didn't fit with a sense of normative justice that was present at, you know, at that time and mm-hmm. efforts to create that system and to, and I mean, we've been doing a lot of work, I think, to counteract that narrative and to create more equitable relationships. But I think that involves recognizing the histories mm-hmm. and the distinction in emotional labor that people have to do to navigate that. And at the same time, I agree with you that you know, you can negotiate that in a relationship. In a functional relationship. 
Yeah, but even a functional relationship exists within the bigger culture, right? Yeah, and yeah, so sure. I would say that the emotional labor is never equal. Mm -hmm. And there's always ethics and morality that comes into this, um, even when, whether you want to or not. Mm -hmm. And I think a framework that would acknowledge that would be a lot easier, use, more useful, I think. Oh, in terms of the nonviolent communication that is has attempted to, to simplify things so that it can be used by everyday people, consequently has neglected to to be available for real-life complex differences in power and historic inequity. Yeah. Another example may be, like, it sounds very different for a woman to say to a man, you're being very emotionally distant, removed. I'd like you to express your emotions more. And a man saying that to a woman, hmm. just because historically it was expected for men to have access to these things and women and they themselves were not supposed to have emotions or not be emotional and so for a woman to ask that of a man she's like speaking against uh, this big history of well why are you even asking these questions men are not supposed to be emotional in relationships they are supposed to be the, the more controlled stoic rational beings and to ask them to be more emotional it's like going against their nature um, it's, uh, you know, what, what are you wasting your time on versus if a man asks that to a woman, women were considered to be more emotional and men were considered to have more access, to be able to have more access to, to, to this person entirely, right? So historically, the different, there's a difference here. Even though now it might seem very well-meaning and I'm not saying it's wrong to ask that of another person, but I think a framework that misses these bigger dynamics can be problematic in different ways. So some of the, the model of nonviolent communication from Marshall Rosenberg. So there were some, some main points in uh, uh, Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication. And uh, I started off by listing the four tenets of, uh, of observing. Feeling, need, and then request. And request. Thank you. And the sentence would be when X happens, I feel why, because I'm needing that. Therefore, I would now like B. Yeah. So there are other aspects to his model that we haven't talked about. And if I can just read them out, maybe we could make comments on it as I, I read them out. I have, let's see, from a critique of his article by Aaron uh, Tornberg, I have 18 points from his article. So Aaron Tornberg pointed out from the article that points that were made were such as like judgments become self-fulfilling prophecies. Mm. Wow. So meaning if uh, I critique somebody for you're always like you're not engaging with me, you're just so quiet, you're like just like a wall. The critique this person is saying will then have the 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 effect of this person, you know, feeling attacked and withdrawing even more. So it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, are there other examples like that that you think might fit that? Like the, these are these are uh, excerpts from how to live a life of nonviolent communication. So, are there other examples of that? Um, 
I, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Judgments become self-fulfilling pro prophecies. So if you have a judgment about your partner, Marshall Rosenberg uh, suggests that that, that makes it, it, it brings it into the relationship and, and, and then you, you, you can't hold on to judgments ultimately is what he's saying. Well, yeah. Or like when you say, you never listen to me, mm -hmm. the, what happens, he says, is that the other person receives that as a critique. Mm -hmm. They blog off. And then they don't want to listen. Yeah. And so it becomes self-fulfilling. Or what else? You you never do the dishes because you're so lazy. Okay, the other person feels like, like annoyed. Like, you know, why would I want to do the dishes when you like treat me like this? And they don't they don't do the dishes. Or something like something along the way. And he's saying that if you refrain from judging, you're just gonna be much more efficient in getting what you need expressed and so this leads into another point from Aaron Torenberg uh, that all judgments are expressions of unmet needs is what uh, Marshall Rosenberg emphasizes in in his book nonviolent communication and he says to connect them to feelings and needs so in communication rather than having a judgment like like you had given the example of cleaning the kitchen you you can you can change it into a statement that expresses your needs and communicates that through through sharing of feelings. Yeah, so if I'm saying to somebody, you're so selfish, we never clean the dishes, he's saying, you know, you might want to connect that to your own feelings and needs. I don't know, whether that's for a clean house, self-care, stability, insecurity. So instead of saying that, you would say, I, in order to feel happy and safe and content in this house it's important for me that the kitchen isn't dirty therefore I request that you spend some more time helping me as opposed to saying oh you're lazy so in a way these are these are useful suggestions but in in uh, as we touched upon they they remain sort of outside of uh, differences in power imbalances and how emotional labor is is divided dependent on those larger systemic inequities. Yeah, and they make sense, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. In, the, in terms of the model, they make sense. And in, in, in relationships that are where both parties are well-meaning and want to connect and want to, and sometimes they just don't know they're not meeting somebody else's needs. And they, they want to, but they just don't know in what ways they may not be doing it. And so that this feedback can be really helpful. Yeah. And you don't want to receive feedback in terms of a judgment. You want to receive it in terms of what the other person is not receiving from you. Receiving. And, th and then you're able to, to alter your, your course of action. And, and I, what I like about this is that, that it is, uh, it is expressed, you know, like it's not implied. So, you had mentioned earlier that the a person who is not communicating their needs and and subsequently behaving in a certain way that expresses dissatisfaction presents difficulty for for the other partner because the other partner will have to deal with their feelings around that and subsequently do emotional labor around that and then present a question to to their partner and attempt to kind of get to the to the bottom of, of what they are actually needing or feeling. So, uh, yeah. I, see, I, I don't think that applies to everyone. Like that this model is, is somewhat simplistic in the sense that, 
that people communicate in many different ways and sometimes mm -hmm. it's easier for some people to understand others than there than it is for others to like like I, I wonder about also how how much reliance our culture puts on words you know mm. yeah that's a good point that's that i think another crit critic critic of this model brought up as well it assumes that people have equal access to language that they're equally able to express themselves using language because this this model the way you express yourself it's quite rational and it provides a framework it it puts a lot of value in finding the right uh, the right words to express what's happening what you see and to communicate that in a very emotive, like stable way to another person yeah um, but that assumes yeah like you're saying that you know people have access to language and communication skills in the same way that they're Aren't other words, other ways of communicating? Um, but here, I think I think it would speak to agreements in the relationship. Like, uh, if if one person has nonverbal communication that they expect their partner to understand, at some point that would have to be made clear. If it wasn't, if it wasn't, you know, at the at the at the onset. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes it takes a while for for somebody in a, for for you to understand if they don't like that is what they're trying to say when they're doing this. Yeah, so it's definitely something that you would negotiate in the, in the context of a relationship. So here's um, another because of the the shortness of time. I, yeah. Uh, there's another point uh, number four: differentiate between triggers and causes. So mm. this is this is again by Eric Torenberg. It's a summary of nonviolent communication. So this he's writing that what others may say and do may be the trigger, but never the cause of our feelings. Our feelings result from how we choose to receive what others say and do and our particular needs, expectations in that moment. Now how do you feel about that? Uh, it's it's useful in the sense that people are living in a, a situation where they are both able communicators have access to language that that revolves around feelings and and have a history of analyzing themselves in that way like if all of a sudden this model gets introduced to someone who who does not have that in their toolbox and has other things that work for them i think it's problematic and it's and and this again speaks to the range of assumptions that that marshall rosenberg operates uh with uh, when presenting this model, it's it's a it's a nice story overall, like to present to the world uh, uh, a model for nonviolent communication. But I think that it, it it falls short in terms of the assumptions that it rests on. Yeah, and it goes back to taking responsibility for your own feelings, right? If I say something to you that might be abusive, then this model says this is just me saying something that's triggering a need in you for something. But my actions are not the cause of your discomfort. But in a and sense, it could also be abusive. Like it could also be someone saying something that is abusive to another person for their own, from their own intentions. Someone, people have to be committed to this model of coming closer to one another, going deeper, being more vulnerable with another person. Those are those are also assumptions I think that that Marshall yeah. makes. Yeah. Exactly. So, like, the different, like, 
saying that we should focus on distinguishment triggers and causes is often quite self can be self-serving or like irrelevant in a context, right? Because whether it is my need for respect that is being triggered when you say something abusive to me, it's irrelevant whether that like what the cause you know, you know what the cause is in a way, right? Because this, the, 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 the result is the same. Um, when I that's in real life, that's not the case. Like uh, there, there are all s sorts of uh, scenarios and situations so that this model would would be unable to address. Yeah. So or it would enable the opposite of what it's intended. Yeah. So number five, if you want to be miserable, compare yourself to other people. This is yeah, well, that speaks for itself, hey. On to the next mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Uh, nice dis one. Distinguish between feelings and the interpretation of feelings. Mm. Yeah, I think that's actually useful and helps us be precise. Like, um, interpret. So examples of interpretations, this author is saying, based on Rosenberg's work, is I feel unimportant, neglected, ignored, betrayed because you did something. He's saying that these are interpretations, they're not feelings. Feelings would be, I feel frustrated, angry, upset, scared, because I'm wanting why thing. Um, and I think that's useful to get at the underlying issue between us. You know, if, like, if you say, because ultimately that's where you want, that's where you're getting to. If you say, I feel unimportant, mm. You know, the next thing is like, well, what's, what's like, what's underneath that? So in a way you, you the other way around, if you just say you're feeling and then you, 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 you get to unimportant later on. Um, you know, I feel sad because the things that I'm observing lead me to, to the, you know, belief that I am not important as opposed to I'm feeling unimportant. Now, I don't know if that distinction makes sense. Well, I, I think that if people are both coming from the same background, again, that they are using an analytic kind of model, uh, that they have access to that language, that that actually would be really useful. Um, because it, it sort of, it sort of, uh, puts more weight on, uh, feelings, which is, uh, it, which can be when used correctly, can be a, a non-judgmental territory where you're just simply passing information on about feelings and allowing hopefully, a, a, an attentive and caring other to respond accordingly and to, to maybe reach reach some sort of understanding, mutual understanding. So, and like, in, you know, you can see it the other way as well. Like you can, it's useful to deconstruct somebody's claims. Mm -hmm. So for example, you can have an abuser who says, I feel betrayed when you do this. Mm -hmm. Actually, these, these, this tool allows the person who the abuser is talking to, to deconstruct it and says, to say, okay, you, you say you feel betrayed, 
let's go at the underlying motivations um, and the underlying needs. And off, it, it can be that underlying the statement, I feel I'm betrayed, is like a sense of entitlement. Um, and that is unrooted and that is tied to various needs that are not really um, very well discussed um, because emotions are political as we discussed in a previous podcast. And so it, it kind of enables like a deconstruction of things, which I find useful. Like, oh, I find, un I feel unimportant to you. You know, if, in, if said in a context of um, not being in a very well-functioning relationship with well-meaning, then it allows the other person to deconstruct that and say, well, why do you feel unimportant? What, you know, and underlying that might be the expectation that men are, women are supposed to validate men all the time. And just by being a man, you're supposed to be important. You know, like all these things can be unpacked, I find, in reverse. That's in a situation where both partners, if it's an abusive relationship, both partners... Uh, I would I would suspect wouldn't be up for that. Like there's there's a lot of sabotage I think in uh, relationships yeah. that are that are abusive that yeah. have strayed away from from intent shared intention and uh, shared uh, commitment to to make a relationship work. Yeah, but it's nevertheless a tool, and I think an abusive relationship exists on the spectrum mm -hmm. with different cool. levels of agency and resistance. And yeah. Or, yeah. So number eight, oh no, sorry, number seven, make requests, not demands. Mm -hmm. That was another point of Marshall Rosenberg's. Sure, I think that again is self-explanatory. Uh, it's a softening of language. It's a, a checking of entitlement, maybe. Yeah. And in a, in a, in a relationship that would involve in emotional involvement from both parties, it would allow the party to, like, if you make a request, hopefully there wouldn't be a reaction and there could be discussion and negotiation around requests. Yeah. And it, and it, and hopefully, yeah. So should I and also, go ahead? And it also puts the other person into a, a position of being able to provide something useful in this relationship yeah. as opposed to feeling pushed to do something that they may not otherwise want to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. So number eight, when listening, like when speaking, follow the observations, feelings, needs, requests, framework. Mm -hmm. So that's basically saying that you, when you, you apply the same that you apply to yourself to the other person. So when you express yourself, you, you follow this framework, but when you listen to the other person, Listen for their observations, your feelings, their needs, and requests, or like clarify them in when you're listening to them. So there's reciprocity. Yeah, exactly. When when listening, ask for number nine. When listening, ask before offering advice or reassurance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. So for me, that means not assuming that your advice is. Uh, warranted or wanted uh, mm -hmm. maybe perhaps listening itself is just needed uh, perhaps there's an opportunity to 
cultivate uh, empathy. Again, this is assuming that this is not an abusive relationship or an un unbalanced one, where it, it seems to kind of be a be a rule that the Rosenbergs come up with that would help to facilitate the experience of empathy. Yeah, I think that's been like a very old and some very old um, saying, right? Just it's not something he necessarily came up with. He just liked it. So this uh, there's a Buddhist saying that says, "Don't just do something. Stand there." You know, obviously that's very old um, idea. Uh, number 10, when listening, treat all insults and judgments of you as the other person expressing unmet needs. Do not take it personally. Wow, is that problematic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Do we need to say more about that or should I keep going? I think I think we have, we've unpacked that a lot. We have, yeah. 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 Number, number 11, when making or listening to requests, differentiate between needs and strategies. So strategies, I think that's, for me, that's, that's pretty simple, but maybe I'm misinterpreting what the author means about strategies, like needs. What do you think it means? Strategies. In other words, be transparent with your intentions. Don't frame listening to a partner in such a way of, that you are, in fact, listening to them when, in fact, it is an effort to get something. It, yeah. If you want something, express that as a as a as a wish or a need or a request, but but don't use the strategy, don't don't use listening as a strategy to get needs met. You know, that's I think what they're what he's suggesting. Mm. But ultimately, yeah. isn't that isn't that really difficult to 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 separate because because you would assume that people in relationship are listening to one another to ultimately feel closer to to each other. And to understand one another better, and and that's a strategy, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. And maybe, um, yeah, maybe it's hard to disentangle it in that example. Mm. But another one, like just going back to the dishes, to say um, you're lazy for not doing the dishes, that mm -hmm. is expressing a strategy, right? Your strategy uh, is to tell this to the person so yeah. that they change, yeah, yeah to get yeah. your movement, yeah, so instead of expressing yourself in a strategy express your need yes that, that makes sense okay yeah that, that that's that's more and you know like obviously there's all sorts of ambiguities and stuff but that that makes sense it's more black and white in that example that you gave so mm -hmm. number 12 avoid labeling people that speaks mm -hmm. speaks uh, for itself i think like if you are in a relationship and you are uh, in a functional relationship, your focus is, is to communicate, understand, go deeper, not, not necessarily come up with, a, with a, a diagnosis or label the person. I think that would ultimately shut them down. Or, and, and it also presents your, you as, as an unsafe person to that, to that other person that you're trying to feel closer to. Yeah, and also, it also pins people down to specific static it almost makes them an, an object that doesn't change. Yeah, yeah, which is mm, which is quite common, you know. Like, like especially, uh, I was I was having a conversation with someone, and they had lived in Germany, and in in Germany they felt like if they were sad one day that that they could be happy the next day, 
if they if they were experiencing difficulty, they could be functional the next the next time. And they lived in Germany for for quite some time, and then when they came here, they found that it was it was much more difficult. It was it wasn't as fluid as it was. If you were angry, one at one point you became an the angry woman, and uh, uh, this particular person feels like in Canada things stick. So avoid labeling yourself. I think that's self-explanatory. That's number three. At the three. same time, hmm? just right, at the same time, though, I think it is important to put language to certain experiences, mm -hmm. especially as a way to resist being abused. Yes. So, yep. Yeah, I think that is also like this, the flip side of this, right? Yeah. It's important to yeah. put language to certain things, even if the other person says, well, you put language to it, you know, that's labeling. Yeah. Fine. I'm labeling it. I'm, I'm, I'm encapsulating what, what is happening in this language. Hmm. I think that's important. Well, I mean, isn't that demonstrated in gender studies? This is gender studies in, in academia attempts to bring language into spheres of experience that that were not discussed in mainstream society and this this has fed the movement of people becoming more aware of or being like where language is and and labels inherent in that language has been part of the political struggle you know yeah yeah so okay so number 14 avoid motivating by guilt yeah that's for me that's pretty that's pretty straightforward yeah but it's kind of it can be subtle right like so for example if you say i'm really disappointed that he didn't show up at my birthday mm. that's that's given as an example of motivating by guilt you know? Ah, ah, that's a yeah. That's often that can be easily overlooked, and you're you may think for yourself that you're just casually letting your partner know that of your of your feelings, but easily that can be uh, encoded by by your partner as as uh, creating guilt. Yeah, that's a that's yeah. a that's a good point. Yeah, or you might you might without even knowing it yourself, believe that they should feel guilty for something. Um, and then it slips into the words that you're using. And it, it can be quite subtle. And, and, and then going back to this, uh, this notion of entitlement, like where, where and, and, and gender inequity, where there is a lot of, for example, like if, if, if the female partner is uh, expected to make dinner and that, mm -hmm. that dinner isn't there. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very disappointed you didn't make dinner. Yeah, I'm very disappointed you didn't make dinner can seem very straightforward and simple for for the person who was expecting their dinner, but for for the person who's making the dinner, there's there's perhaps a whole emotional landscape that yeah. lies beneath that. Yeah, that yeah. is historical as well as as uh, representative of uh, present power inequities. Mm -hmm or expectations. 15. Avoid motivating by should. Avoid motivating by should. You should get me a plate of, you know, potatoes. You should, you know, you should clean up after yourself. You should 
you should stop yelling at me. Yeah, you should you should think you should think first before you talk. You should take out yeah. the garbage. You should So yeah. I think there's there's some um aspect of like in 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 uh reading this I I wonder also if should can become if, if avoiding should can also become where you are using flowery language ultimately to get someone to do something. I would really appreciate it if you would, if the garbage would be taken out in the morning and, and that the, I didn't have to go out and, and take out the recyclables. That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Instead of you should take out the garbage and the recyclables. Is that, is that more about influence? Is that more about the discussion of how to, make friends and influence people or <laughs> um i think again it, it, it like it depends on what kind of relationship we're talking about mm -hmm. the motivations behind it yeah and what what resources are behind such a statement that that suggests that if you don't do this, even if I say it nicely, there's going to be implications. So it's almost, um, it almost creates a conflict is that it's, it's too, it's too sharp a word. It's, it needs softening. Is well, that... I think should comes across, should comes across as a demand mm. in his, his view demands are wrong. Like mm -hmm. the demands are a way that we communicate violently. Um, but at the same time, I think there's some merit to using the word should in some situations. Yeah. Right. You shouldn't hit me. You know, <laughs> yes. but, you know, it, it's, you, you want to get right down to it and say, you know, stop it. You shouldn't you know, slam the door on my foot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but sometimes we need to be very direct, I think. Yeah. Because, again, morality and ethics, they are present in these situations. And just the questions of equity, and, uh, like everything's present. So on to the uh, number 16, which, uh, which perhaps could also relate to mo avoid motivating by should. Anger is an alarm clock for our needs. Mm. Anger could result from being abused or like you had got brought the example of being hit. But anger also is a result of emotional abuse. Anger also results from anger from abuse, like emotionally, emotional abuse. So what's that? It's a protective emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So I, I like that. You know, try to understand your emotions. I think it's the message of this one. Yeah, why am why am I feeling angry and angry about this? And and uh, and then it, I think it goes back to your your comment about labeling and and the purpose of labeling and and also the politics of labeling. Ultimately, politics is needed. There's a place mm -hmm. for politics. There's a place mm -hmm. for labeling. When, when as a couple, we, we would be going deeper with one another, labeling is not helpful, but labeling in the event of abuse or when trying to, to understand our experience of anger is, is perhaps useful and, and necessary in order for us to, 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 move, to move forward, which anger often mm -hmm. pushes us 
pushes us into action, you know? Yeah. Um, Not necessarily a, a, like a like a violent action, but just action in general. Anger can, can be, a, be a catalyst for, for change. Yeah, but at the same time, I do think anger can be problematic. Can you say right? more about that? Well, it's, anger can be used as a tool for control. If you, if, you know, people can come across as very angry on purpose to, be, to make themselves really hard to resist. Um, you know, you can, you can yell at somebody, like, and, you know, your face turns red. And you can use it strategically. You can erupt into anger. You can use it strategically. Hurt somebody yeah. and control them. Because yeah. they can, they, you just boulder them over with that. Or, or uh, what about a partner staying angry? And not revealing the source of the the emotion, like where anger becomes a controlling factor because it remains the source remains unspoken or unrevealed to to the partner. Yeah, and in that yeah. sense, it could be controlling. Yeah, so I I agree. Anger is not the problem, but anger is also the problem. I think that you can say both. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So seventeen, avoid policing others. And a very simple statement that useful in some contexts, not so useful in others, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, use, useful in the sense that if you are communicating, like in, in the context, in the small universe of his nonviolent communication framework, if a couple are with one another and they're faltering on their nonviolent communication techniques, uh, it wouldn't be advantageous to come closer to one another to start to say to start to police what how they are communicating if if it needed if it needed to stray outside the the bounds of the framework mm-hmm. then it wouldn't help necessarily to police how that person was communicating as an example but yeah who wants but, to be policed right <laughs> yeah but like look how this can be expressed the goal is not to get people not to be nice to you the goal is to figure out what need isn't being met when they aren't being nice to you. Isn't that like problematic? Yeah, that like, to understand the need that they have for why why they are not nice. So, so this is interesting in the sense that imagine that you're in a partnership with uh, someone who is not accustomed to expressing their needs and wants wants the other person to interpret their silences or interpret. Uh, their behaviors and and that those behaviors could include being unkind that problematic that creates a problem when because it's ultimately emotional work for someone to have to try to negotiate with a person that is not making an effort to to verbalize but here too it's it's just symptomatic of this uh, framework in that uh, Marshall Rosenberg really relies on words as the ultimate expression, the the point of arrival, whereas there are positive forms of communication that are nonverbal that that can bring a couple together and, and verbiage and, and the use of words can become draining and depleting and exhausting. So it's mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to because life itself, I believe, is uh, somewhere in the middle. It's no, it's not like a either or, but but when when it is abusive, it might be necessary to police, and it might be necessary to judge, and it might ne- be necessary to label at least for yourself what is going on in the relationship, what is happening. It might be necessary, yeah. depending on the con- 
the context. Also, what for one person is holding somebody accountable might be for the other, you're policing me. Like, stop policing me. And the other person is like, no, I'm holding you accountable to your actions. Mm -hmm. And so I think the line can be blurred there in, in problematic ways. Um, and, and there could be some abusive patterns that are yeah. present and that are allowed to continue to happen because with because in this model, people are able to play with language in such a way that they are able to make their statements sound legitimate within the, the context of this model. So yeah. that's, then, that's okay. what you had been saying at yeah. the beginning. Yeah, okay. Um, next one. Number 18, the difference between apology and mourning. That's the last mm -hmm. one. So he's saying that apology is based on moralistic just judgment that what I did was wrong and I should suffer for it. I should even hate myself for it, as opposed to warning, which is, I feel very sad about something, which, I don't know. It's kind of presumptuous of... I didn't apologize, I mourned. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's presumptuous that... I, I, I wonder if he's, he's, he's bringing that up. Like, to me, the difference between apology and mourning is, is quite... It, it's pretty clear... Um, it, it involves being emotionally available to your partner, and in, in that way, you can differentiate between mourning and and uh, apologies. Like, if you are not so readily connected to your emotional world, you may be finding that you're apologizing a lot, and there may be your partner may sense that you don't quite get it. I wonder if if that Rosenberg brought that up because because he is trying to focus on the non-political aspects of emotion or feelings. You're saying that if somebody's if somebody instead of apologizing and mourning, it has some sort of deeper emotional insight into what 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 happened that hurt you. Um, as to apology. Well, yeah, it contains assumptions, I think, that the deeper, the better. The more mm -hmm. felt and the more feeling involved, the better. More information as to unmet needs, more there's a more the better chance for, for the partner to be able to communicate deeper needs and meeting the assumption that everyone wants to go deeper into a relationship with one another that are using his, his nonviolent communi communicative uh, model. Yeah. Uh, I think this goes back to our previous podcast on shame mm. and how we discussed how that emotion can be socially useful sometimes and uh -huh. how it brings us back into a path of ethical relating. It can. And I think by saying don't apologize, apologizing is moral is a moral judgment. It can make you feel very bad. Just mourn, just be sad. It just drains it of I like political implications and more. I, I, I don't like it at all because I think you are supposed, like, it is very important in many contexts. To say I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. to apologize. And not to mourn, because that can feel in disingenuous. Like, why are you sad if you hurt me? Like, apologize for it. Don't mourn with me. Don't mourn. Like, I don't want your tears. I want your apology. I want, you know, and. Yeah, there are, there are often missteps that are political. And, and that merit an apology that may not be 
uh, of the emotional realm. Like there's, this is an assumption I think of the author that, and a, a value judgment also from the author that emotions or feelings good, you know, apology bad. So yeah, and you know, let's say you hurt somebody physically or otherwise, and then you you look at what you did and you mourn. You feel so sad for how they how they are now struggling because of it. And that's how you're trying to address the situation. You show them your sadness, but you don't apologize because if you apologize, it might mean that you're responsible, that there is something morally that you did wrong. And he is saying, don't do that. Don't, don't you know, we want to get away from judgments, moral judgments. Mourning is much less conflictual, much less violent. But I think, I think actually it can be more. I think that's a bit naive uh, of the author to assume that the world of feelings uh, is somehow... It's, it's also got the assumption that the author knows this world, that the author knows the trajectory of, of the world of feelings. And uh, anyone who has experience with feelings knows that it is tempered with uh, our rational mind. It's tempered with different aspects of our being, whether it's our body or, you know, there, there are, it's, it's, not, it's not a world that we can remain in all the time. We need to, it's, it's not uh, the totality of us. I think it's important to, like, I agree with you. I'm just reiterating that I agree with you that, that it's important to have, to, to make apologies when necessary and not just uh, go to a default emotional or feeling experience. It could become very isolating, you know, that that person is feeling compelled to have an emotional reaction. Uh, what if they don't? <laughs> what if what if they are not able to mourn? They, they must have some defect of their character or they must dig deeper and that that can just slippery slope, I think. Also, it has the implication that the other person potentially now has to um, comfort this person who is mourning for doing something wrong to this person. Mm -hmm. Because now they're like, they're mourning, they're sad, you want to take care of them. Or like they're calling to be cared for in a sense, which again, I don't think is always neat. It's, 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 that in itself can be a form of violence, right? Where the, the person who has been hurt now has to comfort the person who did the hurting because this person is sad about hurting them. Like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't uh, necessarily say that's a form of violence. Maybe it, depending on uh, how violence is defined, but it's someone could say that's coercion. You know, someone could say that that is uh, dysfunctional, like a form of co codependence, or that they are like that. Just that sounds like a really <laughs> weird kind of situation to be in. Yeah, I feel it centers the person, the the one that did something wrong. Right? Ah, uh, yes, yeah. That can be a form of violence. Yeah. By, because you're, you're, you're repackaging the, what happened in, in a self-serving way. And in, in doing so, you're erasing the moral relevance and the ethical relevance of what happened. And I find, especially within bigger systems that we're in, it can have very negative consequences. 
And one, one author used the expression um, ethical loneliness to say that to, 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 to describe the situation where somebody is in when something happened to you that was dramatic and then when you try to tell it in a way and to listen for other people to listen, they don't really listen. They, they receive it, but there's nothing really that gives you the sense that they actually listen. So you like violate it twice, once when it happened and twice when you expressed your pain and it was repackaged in a way that it didn't really re uh, resonate. So uh, uh, just so that I understand what you're saying, can you give me a real life example of that? Oh, uh, you know, like the big political one is reconciliation, right? Hmm. How it is received. Something happened that was very traumatic in the past continues to happen. Uh, uh, yeah. And now when I, when I bring this to the political conscious, the way it is received, it's repackaged to avoid unnecessary moral blame and to delegate and to minimize it as much as possible or to, to not accept the full extent of the, the implications. And that leaves this person twice violated and twice alone, and twice abandoned. And if you find like you can, I'm sure you can find um, parallels in individual relationships where something, somebody did something to hurt them. And then when the person expressed their hurt, the way that it was received centered this person again, as uh, opposed to centering uh, the other person. Ah, uh, got it. As to uh, addressing the the hurt itself, or yeah, yeah, and and flipping the tables, and then centralizing the person who who was causing the hurt in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. And and in terms of reconciliation, it's also the who is the who is speaking, you know. Is, is significant who is who is framing the narrative who is excluded and often it's uh, in in uh, in that space it's often not the one who was uh, harmed in the first place yeah and I think that that touches like a, a subject that we haven't really talked about at all and that's like how does nonviolent communication relate to trauma sensitive communication mm -hmm. Especially because nonviolent communication often can involve four course intimacy and no consent and no boundaries. Mm, yeah. Moving forward into a conversation, into intimate moments, and in a situation where somebody has a lot of traumas that they're working through, uh, consent boundaries, uh, like slow, intimate, uh, slowly becoming intimate, like. Uh, as opposed to dumping it all at once, mm. I think it's actually very key, right? And so this framework doesn't think about that at all. Mm -hmm. And I think you can we can discuss that at length. Um, I think there's so much to say on that topic. Yeah, that that but, sounds actually like a really relevant topic. I would like to talk about that in the future. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. For sure. Okay, I, I think it come to our time, come to the end. Yeah. Do you have any last comments about nonviolent communication and Marshall Rosenberg's framework? Well, I like, I really appreciate it for the way it pushes you to really think through what, what violent communication means. Mm -hmm. I think we don't, I don't think we have unpacked that in our conversation yet. Like what yeah. actually are the implications and how, what, in what ways it manifests. Mm. And I really appreciate that because oftentimes we 
are not aware, especially if we have more privileged of the implications of our, our actions and how it might come across as, as quite destabilizing or harmful um, that we don't even realize. So I find that's very useful. And I also like it for the ways that it encourages us to be more clear about our feelings and our needs, what we desire and like what we need in a relationship, and to repackage that in a way that it's respectful and empathic. And so in, in that way, I, I like it. But again, there's a lot of things to say about it that is, requires more context. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I like the framework simply for the discussion that ensues when talking about, like, when thinking about how we are in relationship and how we are communicating with each other and some of the patterns of how we communicate with each other when in relationship. I think he offers at least some ideas that we can attach and attach to and, and experiment with kind of thing. So... Yeah, I appreciate critiquing this and, and noticing that like this is such a huge, huge topic and there are ways, different ways that people communicate are so innumerable that this is a conversation that could just have so many different branches. And and, and it couldn't if anything, this this uh, just this could be the beginning of enriching the discussion around how to connect and uh, be with one another in relationship mm -hmm. in, in ways that can support and nurture the relationship. But considering that, not that's considering that with the assumption that everyone wants to be <laughs> in a close, nurturing relationship. Maybe not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Deep breath. And... I'll see you next time. Yeah, uh, see you next time, and uh, thanks for the interesting conversation. I hope I hope people get something out of it. Thank you as well, Andrew. Okay, see you. Bye.